Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. So today we have with us a man who is providing really, really great value to the alternative investment community and uh, doing something different than, uh, if not most, all of the podcasts I've had on the show, podcast guests I've had on the show. So I am super, super excited to talk to him. He co-founded Alternative Investment Database, and he's connecting investors with sponsors and funds and what have you. And that's what we're going to talk about. He is. Andy Hagens. Andy, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thanks for having me, Roger. I'm looking forward to doing this. Good to see you and and thanks so much. And before we get into the questions about what you're doing, which I, I find really fascinating, where did the Andy Hagen story start? Where are you from? Well, geez, uh, I was born in Florida, but I, I basically grew up in Columbus, Ohio um, for most of my life. And then from there, I went to school at Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana, moved down to Houston, moved to Chicago, and somehow landed in Southwest Michigan, uh, which I love. My wife and I moved here, I think it was eight years ago. So I'd say at this point, we consider ourselves uh, native Michiganders. You know what? I got a hand it to you right out of the gate. You look great. You don't look like you're as old as somebody who's made that many moves for that many years. <laughs> you look like you're 22, Andy. Well, you know, the secret is the buzz cut. You just, I keep my hair really short and you don't see all the white and gray hairs that way. So, well, I'm trying the same thing, but I don't, I don't <laughs> think I'm pulling it off quite as well as you are because it would be charitable to call this a buzz cut. Uh, <laughs> no comment, Roger. No comment. <laughs> where in Florida were you born and why did you guys move to Columbus? It's, you, you guys did a, a reverse uh, move there. Well, you'd have to ask my mom and dad, but uh, my dad uh, was a car dealer. He just retired. But uh, he had a car dealership in Ohio, and then he started one in Florida. And then a couple of years later, they moved back to Ohio. He started another one in Ohio. And that's honestly where I got my entrepreneurial uh, DNA or on- entrepreneurial bug, I think, is, is from my dad uh, running a car dealership. And I worked for him all growing up and you know, got to see firsthand how it's done and the benefits of working for yourself. But as, as far as why they didn't stay in Florida, you'd honestly have to ask them because if, if they would have asked me at two and a half years old, I probably would have voted to stay near the beach and, you know, stay in the state where we had a swimming pool year round. Where was it? Uh, well, gosh, now that I'm thinking about it, I don't know that we had our own swimming pool, but, you know, definitely at grandma's house. Where, or, was, where in that? Florida? Oh, Fort Myers, Florida. Where in Florida. Okay. Fort Myers. Got it. Well, yeah. I, I can tell already. I'm one of the. Th- I have many, many weaknesses, but I have a couple strengths. And one of my strengths is I'm a pr- not fail safe, but I'm a pretty good judge of character. And I would say, in just the first couple minutes, you have belied the trend in your family coming out of the car dealership, and you're actually honest. <laughs> you know. My dad knows all those jokes. Uh, he probably has a, a hundred or more of them. Um, yeah, he's got, we also have a nice collection of lawyer jokes. Um, yeah, honestly, don't get me started because I just have a lot of dad jokes, period. So 
but they're always okay. appreciated. <laughs> well, you know what? My stepfather was a very large Chevrolet dealership in Cleveland. I'm laughing, but uh, no, uh, when I go to buy a car, it's like the light. I'd rather go to the dentist and, and, and not have Novocaine. And I'm the guy that asks the weird specific questions. And I have to ask what brand of car was it? Was it domestic? Was, was it uh, uh, foreign cars? What was it? Uh, honestly, it was everything. It was, you know, whatever was, was a good value. He served his, his auto lot served uh, like a working class, middle-class type area. So it was all used cars. Oh, right on. Okay. Well, man, now, now we're talking. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Son of a gun, man. Okay. Um, <laughs> Right on. Hey, man, there's better margin in used cars. Well, it's interesting that you say that because the car shopping experience has changed so much. From what I understand now, they make almost all their money off of financing as well as, you know, service. And they make almost no money off of the vehicles themselves or very little margin off the vehicles themselves. So it's, it's pretty interesting, at least the new car industry. And of course, it's gone totally crazy in the past 18 or 24 yes. months. It sure has. I'm not sure, and I'm not an expert, but I'm not sure that's on used cars. And the reason that used cars used to have more margin is because you can't shop them. You can't compare them and go, well, the dealer down the street has, you know, here it is 2022. Well, the dealer down the street has a uh, 2019, you know, uh, 500 series BMW. Well, no, they don't because it's one at a time. Anyway, I am digressing too much. And so you're in, you're in Western Michigan. How did you get into, tell me about um, the alternative investment database. I'm super curious to know about the business model. And I guess I'm co-joining a lot of questions in one. And then why did you, how did you come up with it? Yeah, good questions. Well, let me rewind just a little bit as to how I got my start even in finance, because my degree is in marketing. And actually, I started out in the marketing field right after school. My roommate, my college roommate, Jimmy and I, we started a lead generation business. But then we, we later sort of evolved that business, exited it and started a new business uh, covering the ETF industry and covering offerings uh, new exchange traded funds. And so that business was called ETF database. And uh, if you were an active investor around, you know, 2010, 2011, 2012, you may remember that site. At one point, I think we were the largest independent media covering exchange traded funds. Um, and, and so anyway, we, we operated that business with another partner. His name is Michael. And we ended up selling the thing and now it's been, it's been resold and now it's owned by a private equity company. It's part of a bigger roll up. But during that time, you know, I learned a whole lot about financial products, um, portfolio strategy, as well as, you know, how they're marketed, you know, whether to advisors and wealth managers or to the retail market. And so I, I sort of got interested in finance and investing at that time. And after we exited that business, you know, I, you know, that was um, coming out of the financial crisis of 2008 you know, going in from, from 2009 all the way to, to the present day, I've managed my own investments and, you know, I've, I've kind of learned along the way some uh, lessons with alternative investments, because even though the, the bulk of my portfolio is in traditional investments, honestly, all along the way, I, I, as an entrepreneur, I've always been interested in real estate and startups and private equity and things like that. So 
A couple of years ago, my partner, Jimmy Atkinson, who had been my partner in ETF database, he started a brand new property and he did this, you know, independently called uh, the Opportunity Zones database uh, at opportunitydb.com. And essentially what OpportunityDB is, it's a, it's a media, a little media empire, I guess you could say, with an email list and a podcast and an event series that's the largest independent media covering Opportunity Zone funds. Um, and, and those are sort of a niche thing in the private equity real estate space, um, but they're growing in popularity. And Jimmy got in touch with me a couple of years ago and, you know, I'd been following what he'd been doing at Opportunity DB, and it was really exciting to see it grow. And he basically said, hey, Andy, you know, I would like to expand beyond just these Opportunity Zone funds into other types of alternative investments. But I'm only one guy, you know, I have limited bandwidth. What do you what do you think about getting the band back together uh, and helping me launch a second brand under this umbrella? And so that's that's the genesis of AltsDB, uh, the alternative investment database. And so really what AltsDB is, is um, it's independent media and we cover alternative investments. But honestly, I have to almost hit the pause button right there and detail. What do I mean by alternative investments? Because if you ask 100 different people, including sophisticated people, in the financial industry, what an alternative investment is, you're going to tend to get a hundred different answers. You know, they might all be in the same wheelhouse or a lot of them in the same wheelhouse. Um, but to define an alternative investment, we're really talking about anything that is not highly liquid. That's an investment. So anything that's not a stock or a bond or cash or like a cash like instrument. And when I say a stock or a bond, I'm also going to throw in index funds, mutual funds, exchange traded funds, you know, highly liquid instruments or wrappers that that basically hold those things. Those would be still uh, considered traditional investments. So anything outside of that is an alt or an alternative investment. But then even within alternative investments, you know, you have so many types of things you could call an alternative investment. You know, you have gold and silver and precious metals. Of course, you have real estate. That's the 800 pound gorilla. Um, you know, you, you could even think of uh, contemporary art as an alternative investment. But with AltsDB, you know, we're very specific on what we cover. And so we don't cover every single thing that you could conceivably call an alternative investment. What we tend to cover are private placement offerings, meaning private funds, mainly invested in real estate, but also in other types of private equity investments. And they're typically offered to accredited investors um, and they're very illiquid, you know, so that's really the, the most defining characteristic of an alternative investment is it's an illiquid investment. So I, geez, I, I feel like I've been going on for about five minutes and you probably asked me a, a pretty simple question, <laughs> but uh, uh, why don't we stop there? Does that make sense? I loved every second of it, and 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 it's really why I wanted to interview you. And and I, uh, some people that listen to this, uh, selfishly, the reason I do this podcast is I as well am an investor, and I just do this to learn because um, I've over the years developed a, a pretty acute penchant uh, in talent for losing money, and so I, I've decided I, I wanted to stop doing that, and then so that's what this podcast has turned into is for me to learn, and so. I loved every second of it. And just, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty much awestruck. I mean, until you said that, 
I thought that alternative investments was just pretty much every, I mean, I never really thought about that much, but I just kind of assumed it was everything that wasn't public. You know what I mean? That basically wasn't the public market. So you're, you're, you did such an eloquent job of saying, well, first of all, a hundred people, a hundred different definitions, but that's, but you're, you're breaking it down, Andy, kind of like, and not necessarily in absolute terms, but if I heard you correctly, you're talking basically, well, not necessarily that this isn't the case, but you're talking that the definition is really more around liquidity versus illiquidity. Absolutely. And, and then even within that, there are certain areas that I focus on more, but, but take liquidity, for instance, you know, is are, are gold and silver, are those an alternative investment? Well, if you have a stack of gold coins at home, you know, uh, American gold eagles, those aren't totally liquid in the way that I can log into E-Trade and, you know, liquidate an ETF. But on the other hand, if you live in a major city, you probably can drive across town and, you know, exchange uh, gold bullion for for cash. So those are fairly liquid. And then, you know, think about like a gold ETF, you know, GLD or or any of those ETFs that track a gold index or even hold gold, physical gold. Um, those are very liquid instruments. So, you know, really there's there's a spectrum. And even once we get into the world of real estate and like, let's talk about REITs, for instance, you know, it used to be uh, a lot of non-traded REITs, non-publicly traded REITs were, were substantially illiquid. And now with NAV REITs, you know, there's a little bit more liquidity that's offered it sort of like with, with a mutual fund, there's intermittent liquidity and you have interval funds that offer intermittent liquidity. So even a lot of these more illiquid products do have, you know, limited liquidity options. So there's more of a spectrum now when we use the term alternative investment. And I tend to focus really on, on one end of the spectrum where we're talking about highly illiquid investments that are typically only open to accredited investors. And a lot of times they'll have an investment minimum of $100,000 or even higher, even $250,000 or $500,000 or higher. So, you know, a lot of the private equity funds and, and those types of funds that until now, we're, we're often, you know, mostly, we're mostly talking about like pension funds and institutional investors or, or university endowments or endowment funds that were investing in these types of products. But the trend has been towards democratizing them. And again, it's all relative because I'm not talking about, you know, crowdfunding, but going down from the, you know, ultra high net worth investor who's maybe placing 5 million or two and a half million or a million at a time, or an endowment that's placing 10 million, 20 million at a time down to a very high net worth investor who's maybe placing a hundred thousand or 250,000 at a time. Hey, street smart listeners. I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, vice president, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305 467 5909. 
you'll be glad you did. And when you, in that context, we say a highly, uh, high net worth individual, how much are you talking about just in your brain? So that's funny because again, the, the definition for ultra high net worth or very high net worth, it depends on who you ask, but I think I've seen for ultra high net worth 25 million and up, but, but honestly, I probably saw that like seven years ago. So you should probably go ahead and double that and say 50 million and up for ultra high net worth. And for very high net worth, again, I think years ago I saw 5 million and up. So I'd probably, you know, double that and say 10 million and up, I might consider very high net worth. So really you're not quite, you know, around those two numbers, you're not quite to the level where you'd have a family office. You know, typically to have a family office, you'd have a net worth of like a hundred million or, or more. So, you know, we're really talking about investment strategies and the types of products that have been very popular with institutional investors for really the past two or three decades. I don't know if our listeners or uh, Roger, if you're familiar with David Swenson of the Yale Endowment Fund, but he sort of popularized this idea of investing in very illiquid type investments. Um, And the theory behind that is that because investors enjoy liquidity, that there should be, you know, in in an abstract sort of sense, there should be an illiquidity premium, right? So investors should get paid more for being willing to invest in illiquid investments. And so over the long run, you know, if you don't need the liquidity, again, in theory, the practice can sometimes be different, but in theory, if you don't need the liquidity, it would be better to invest in illiquid investments, assuming that they are paying you that illiquidity premium. Why has there been this trend towards democratization, uh, you know, to be able to uh, include retail investors in, you know, some of these funds? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think there's a lot of different factors. It's almost a, a perfect storm. I think uh, one factor would just be regulatory, right? So historically, uh, we had 506B private placement offerings. And to invest in one of those types of funds, like a real estate fund that's a 506B, you'd have to buy it through uh, uh, an investment advisor, right? A, a financial advisor. Um, you couldn't just go out, even if you're a self-directed investor. And in fact, even if you're accredited, right? Even if you're an accredited investor with, let's say, a net worth of 10 million bucks, you couldn't go out and invest directly into one of these funds, you'd have to go through a financial advisor, either either your own financial advisor, if you already had one, or even if you didn't, you would still have to essentially go find a financial advisor and place the investment through them. Well, now, several years ago, we had the advent of the 506C uh, fund, right? And that's a, that's a similar private placement offering. So these are you know funds that are not publicly traded. They have very limited liquidity and they're typically offered only to accredited investors. But now with a 506C, an investor can direct uh, directly invest into the fund without going through a financial advisor or any sort of um, intermediary. So this allows a sponsor, like a fund sponsor, to advertise directly to a retail investor. And again, it's all relative. When I see retail investor, I'm talking about accredited investors. So you know, that's that's one part of the trend, I think, is is just simply the existence of uh, 506Cs now, which has really been in, in the last decade or so. 
Um, that has been, been one thing that has democratized the industry. But another thing is, you know, we had David Swenson. So he really popularized this, uh, with the Yale endowment fund. Uh, and, and for years, the Yale endowment fund had uh, much higher returns, you know, than, than most endowments. And, you know, he, he basically was pretty open about the strategy. And so over time, um, that strategy became more and more popular with endowments and institutional investors, you know, and just any type of large investor, like a pension fund or anything like that, they sort of, they're more conservative, but if they see other folks in the space having success, you know, they'll sort of slowly move into it. And what's happened is these institutional investors and, you know, pension funds and endowments, um, they've sort of slowly adopted these illiquid alternative investments. And they've set more or less, each of them has, you know, set their own portfolio target where, you know, we want 20% of our portfolio or 30% of our overall endowment to be in alternative investments. And in many cases, they've now met that uh, goal. They've met that threshold in their own portfolio. And so now it's more a matter of maintaining that ratio within their portfolio but for the past 20 or 30 years, that was a huge tailwind for the whole industry is, is that uh, a lot of these institutional investors who managed tremendous amounts of money were starting from a pretty low level and were just trying to deploy more and more capital into these alternative investments. Now that a lot of those larger investors have more or less met their goal in terms of allocation, I think that the industry wants to turn towards a new source of growth, right? And so that new source of growth by default has to be the retail market. And again, I use that term relatively, you know, the the ultra high net worth, the very high net worth. And in some cases, you know, sort of your quote unquote everyday accredited investor, but but really I, I think they're more targeting, you know, folks with a net worth of, of five or 10 million or more. Are they able to offer, for le- for lack of a better term, are they able to offer less attractive returns to the retail investor? Not not returns, fee mm-hmm. structure. So, in other words, are there is there is there a, a motivation there that they don't have to give the same? You know, they they can have higher fees for a retail investor than you know a university endowment. Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a very good question. And I think the answer is it depends. I mean, if you look at it from the fund sponsor's point of view, would you rather have one institutional investor who cuts you a check for 50 million bucks or a hundred retail investors that each cut you a check for on average $500,000? Your costs, even in preparing tax returns, you know, sending out K-1s, and just uh, you know, cl- client service and interacting with clients, your your cost structure is going to be higher. So I think the fees are a bit higher. I think in general, for funds that are are geared towards retail, and you know, some of these funds will also they'll be transparent about it though. You know that they can for an LP to come in at one level versus versus another, they can either give you bonus shares or they can waive some fees if you reach that you know higher investment threshold. But I, I would say in most cases, I, I think I'm very wary of fees and and certainly with a lot of alternatives, there are substantial fees. But um, I don't think it's the case that they're 
that sponsors are wading into this retail market, you know, and just ripping everybody off or, or anything like that. Um, because a lot of the self-directed accredited investors who are investing in these, a lot of the LPs are, are really pretty sophisticated. I mean, especially with a private placement offering that holds real estate, a lot of the people investing have made their money in real estate. And so when they look at a pro forma, you know, they know what they're looking at, you know, probably better. A lot of LPs know what they're looking at better than I do. You know, I'm an LP, but I'm sort of a generalist rather than an expert in any one area. So I think, you know, there's less transparency than there is with, let's say, a mutual fund market. But but at the same time, you know, there is transparency in terms of when, when I look at an offering, I'm going to look at the deck, I'm going to look at the fee structure, I'm going to review the PPM and, you know, look at all the fees in there. So it pays to do your homework, but but I wouldn't say that they're going into the retail market, you know, to rip everybody off. Certainly. Oh yeah, no, and I, I, that wasn't even my. I wasn't even thinking that. I I was just like thinking like, you know, business is business, and I was just wondering could that be part of their strategy, or the, or part of the reason to kind of go down the ladder? But you you've covered it, and uh, you know, well, I I, I, I think it. that's a very very valid question. I, I think it's more. I th- honestly, I think sponsors are are most interested, number one, they want to pursue good projects, right? Because their track record, you really only have one track record if you're a sponsor, you know, and it lasts the rest of your life. So they want successful projects, but aside from that, they want AUM, they want assets under management, right? So I, I think most sponsors, rather than rather than thinking about how do I squeeze 10 more basis points out of 50 million in AUM, they're more thinking about how do I get to 500 million in AUM? How do I get to a billion in AUM? How do I grow that to 2 billion in AUM? That moves their needle a lot more than another, you know, 10 basis points in fees. Yep. Makes perfectly logical sense. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just a way to grow their base. I get it. Here's another thing I kind of always, always, I've been pretty aggressively investing for the last few years, so I don't have the experience that you do, but, um, I kind of assumed that there was just a correlation in terms of higher returns with some of these illiquid assets, or, or, or let's put it this way, there's a correlation between lack of short-term yield to higher IRR based on the period. So in other words, stuff with, yeah, I, I think I'm saying it right. So the, so stuff that, for example, takes where you're illiquid for five years, for example, or even 10, mm-hmm. uh, seems to be a higher IRR versus stuff that you can maybe get a yield of, you know, six to 8% out of the gate. Is there a correlation? Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, for sure, I would hope there would be an illiquidity premium on something that, you know, the life cycle is five or 10 years where you're illiquid for five or 10 years. So Let's talk about qualified opportunity funds, for instance. So this is a, you know, typically structured as a private placement offering where you're investing usually in real estate in a qualified opportunity zone. There's a tremendous, tremendous tax break associated with investing in these funds. If you can have, if you have a qualified capital gain that you can invest in, in into an opportunity zone fund, but because of the nature of the program, um, they're almost all ground up development, right? So you can't just start an opportunity zone fund and, and go buy up, um, you know, class A, fully stabilized multifamily assets or something like that. You're typically talking about building from the ground up. So there's a lot of risk. You know, it's, it's going to be 
a couple years, right? Before um, your project is up and running, maybe three years, right? And then there's a lease up period and so on and so forth. So you take a lot more risk when you are illiquid for five or more years. In the case of a, an opportunity zone fund, you actually have to keep your money in there for 10 years to receive that full tax benefit. So you're talking about locking your money up for 10 years. And so I think investors are uh, right to insist on that higher rate of return, You know that illiquidity premium. When we're talking about investments that are really high yield right off the bat, you know, five, six, seven percent. I'm always cautious because, you know, if if a yield is a lot higher than alternative sources of yield, I think it, it, it behooves one to ask oneself why, right? What what type of risk am I taking to be compensated with this higher yield? So, you know, I, I'd caution investors to, you know, take a hard look at investments that are offering, you know, really high immediate yield. I get it. Like uh, Kevin uh, O'Leary of the sh- of, on Shark Tank says, he's never seen a performa he didn't love. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> you're not going to pitch your investment as uh, below average returns, but twice the risk, right? Like you're you're going to yeah. put, put your best foot forward. But yeah, like I said, a lot of these private placement offerings. So let me talk a little bit about what we do at, at AltsDB. You know how we make money, how we make money at AltsDB and our sister site OpportunityDB. So we do these, they're like super events. It's, it's kind of like a webinar, but it's an all-day event. It's online. And they are investor events where we have usually a, up to a thousand, sometimes more than a thousand accredited investors, uh, as well as financial advisors who register for the event. And they're basically signing up and registering, uh, wanting to see new offerings or existing offerings that are open right now, right? And then on the other end, we we get sponsors lined up. And so that throughout the day of the event, we'll sort of alternate between sessions where a sponsor is pitching their fund. Uh, and then we'll do educational panels or, you know, talk about the state of the market, things like that in between. So the sponsors will come and, you know, each sponsor has a deck where they show their private placement offering. Again, typically real estate, not always though, but all kinds of different private equity investments and it's an interactive event. So, you know, we, we use Zoom. And so the attendees at the event can ask questions. And it always amazes me how shrewd some of the questions are, you know, at the live event. And it just reminds me that a lot of people who've built substantial wealth have built it either through entrepreneurship, but a lot of times through real estate. And, you know, they know how to read a pro forma and break it down. Not everybody does. But enough of them do that, you know, I just see a lot of um, things get challenged, but but in a good way, right? Because when you're talking with a good sponsor, they're going to welcome your hard questions and, and they're they're going to have a good answer. So that's what we do at, at OpportunityDB. We have OZ Pitch Day, which we run three times a year. It's the largest event for Opportunity Zone funds. So those are really, in my opinion, a, a great type of alternative investment for accredited investors to look at. And then uh, under AltsDB, we do the Alts Expo. And right now we're running it once a year. It's been so popular. I think next year we'll, we'll probably run it twice next year. Uh, but that event is coming up on December 8th. Um, so anyone listening, uh, feel free to check us out. AltsDB.com slash expo. I think you can register now and it's free to register. Um, but honestly, even if you're not 
uh, looking to make an investment, you know, in December, if you just want to review different decks and just sort of get exposure and, and learn and get educated on these different types of alternative investments, I think they're great events just to see all the decks and, to, you know, sort of compare and contrast and to see what's out there. If it's free to register is the revenue model, then what you, you charge sponsors, then the opportunity to, to to get access to the audience? Oh, absolutely. They got to pay us big bucks, right? Because, I mean, honestly, no, I with, I'm not challenging it. I'm just asking yeah. the question. Well, I mean, because, you know, what we're what we're essentially doing as independent media covering alternative investments and covering qualified opportunity funds, we're sort of gathering an audience, both with our podcasts I host the Alternative Investment Podcast and my partner, Jimmy, hosts the Opportunity Zones Podcast. So we gather audience with our podcasts and then also with our email newsletter. And these are accredited investors or financial advisors who advise accredited investors. So, you know, and when they show up to an investor event, you know, a lot of them are looking to place capital. Some of them are looking to place capital like within 24 hours, <laughs> depending on the, it's, it's kind of a funny thing with, um, Opportunity zone funds, they're kind of like 1031 exchanges and that um, people investing into them often are sitting on a capital gain where they have a tax deadline coming up. So it's always funny after every show, we'll get a couple emails like, hey, I, I have a million bucks or I have 500,000 that I need to invest by Tuesday. What was so-and-so's phone number again? <laughs> and they really do. You know, they have that deadline where you don't want to blow that tax deadline, whether you're talking about a 1031 exchange or a qualified opportunity fund. It's really important to do those things by the book. Hey, listen, I'm only jealous. I didn't think of the idea first, okay? No, I, <laughs> what you're doing is, is brilliant. No, I, I, I get it. And, you know, because the, the reality is this, how, how else are these sponsors going to get a thousand people in one place at one time that are interested in, you know, what they have to offer? So, no, I, I think what you're doing is ingenious, but I wonder, and of course you've thought about this, I wonder if you, you didn't charge, I don't know, 50 bucks to the registrants so that you're not going to get rich on it. You can make a case to the sponsors that are, that are that much more qualified because they're willing to pay, but you know, we don't need to go down that rabbit hole or a hundred. I mean, well, how many of these invest, you know, these accredited investors, uh, as I go down the rabbit hole, I said, I wasn't going to go down. What's it for them to pay? What I'll throw a number out, 150 bucks, and then more perceived value, you know, for them, right? Just marketing 101, you're a marketing guy. But anyway, listen, uh, that's to be discussed offline is, is you and I become partners in this deal. <laughs> <laughs> so here's a, here's a question to the Mr. Investing 101 that I am. Is the reason for somebody to invest in traditional versus versus alternative just for one's own portfolio because of the liquidity like you never know what's going to happen money for a rainy day this kind of thing like why and and what's a smart allocation of traditional versus you know versus you know alternative boy that's a great question so why invest in alternative investments? I mean, a big reason is portfolio diversification. The question is really why invest in traditional vehicles? Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, most investors do want and need some liquidity. But I, but I would also say the value of alternatives is diversification. And, and a lot of alternatives are real estate. You know, a lot of alternative funds are in the real estate segment. So 
I wouldn't want to have a portfolio that's all real estate, for instance. You know, but by the time that you're you're a hundred percent real estate, then publicly traded stocks would represent, you know, an alternative, you know, for for that type of investor. So I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of diversification just because it's gonna smooth out volatility and it's probably not going to hurt your returns. You know, whether you're 50% stocks, 25% bonds, 25% real estate, or 33, 33, 33, or 60-20-20, you know, at the end of the day, if you have that balanced portfolio over 40 years, they're they're all going to probably return pretty well. There can be decades, though, when any individual asset class has terrible returns, whether we're talking real estate, whether we're talking bonds whether we're talking publicly traded stocks. So I'm a big fan of that diversification. Um, I would say that I think, especially in today's day and age, and especially for an accredited investor, you have to be investing for triple net returns, meaning uh, your returns net of fees and inflation and taxes. And so once I sort of know broadly what sort of allocation I want to stocks, in bonds and real estate, uh, it's very advantageous to look at that holistically and say, okay, how much tax advantage space do I have in a 401k, in an IRA or a SEP IRA or any sort of you know individual tax type plan like that? And then outside of that, in the alternatives world, you know, if you're able to do 1031 exchanges, even if you want to go passive, you can invest in a Delaware statutory trust. Or if you just have any type of capital gain that qualifies, you can invest in qualified opportunity fund. Um, but I think it really behooves the investor to to max out that tax advantage space because over time that that can be a huge uh, drag on returns, or it can boost those triple net returns tremendously. What percent of um, alternative uh, investments are real estate? Boy, that's a good question. You know, I've seen different stats on that, but I I would say. They're definitely the largest, the largest alternative investment percentage-wise is real estate uh, by far. I mean, and if you think about just the value of all of the real estate in the world, and the value of all of the publicly traded stocks in the world, and the value of all of the bonds in the world, um, it's interesting because a lot of people, like individuals now, like non-accredited investors, they want to own their own home which I do think can be a good way to build wealth, right? And then they might invest a little bit in a 401k or in an IRA. But big picture, a lot of those folks are arguably overweight in real estate, assuming that, you know, because not not all of them are maxing out their 401k, not all of them are maxing out their IRA. And then at the, at the other extreme, you know, you have these big institutional investors that may have a 30% allocation to alternatives or to real estate. But then in the middle with that, you know, the the mass affluence with, um, you know, the, the high net worth, very high net worth, um, a lot of those folks may own their own home, but then generally they're just investing more and more into stocks and bonds. And at a certain point, I think you need to sort of x-ray your, your whole portfolio and say, well, if, if only five or 10% of my net worth is in real estate, even though I own my own home, you know, arguably that's underweight. Um, and you're taking on more risk than you need to by being underweight in alternatives. Very interesting. 
I'm very focused on yield right now. And so uh, I'm probably more, way, well, not probably, I'm, I'm more weighted in, in uh, alternatives than what you just described. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering if there's not a way to be yield focused and still be risk adjusted so that it makes sense to, I mean, is it insanity? And of course it varies on where one is and one's stage of life and what, you know, how much liquidity they have and what their net worth actually is. But I wondered, is it crazy for somebody, let's say to take a very high net worth individual, let's say that's worth 15 million bucks, for example, is it insanity? And let's say they're living off their investments. Let's say they don't have a W-2 or they've sold their company or whatever. Is it insanity for them to have 70% of their you know, investments in alternative investments? Is that, or is that too weighted, too, too risky? That's a really good question. I mean, I, I think it depends on the person and their liquidity needs, right? So whatever you might potentially need to be liquid should be liquid, right? I mean, so- What do you need to live on exactly? Yeah, exactly. So like if I, you know, speaking personally, if I didn't have at least a couple of years worth of living expenses in liquid investments, I would, I would be nervous about that. And I'd be saying, well, with, with any new savings, I'm going to invest those in liquid investments so that, you know, you, you can have some liquidity, but at a certain point, um, the term that I use, I, I didn't come up with this. I had DJ Van Coren, who's uh, the founder of um, the family office real estate Institute. And so he works with a lot of family offices and the term that he uses is patient capital, right? And being patient with your capital, it's not really a matter of virtue. Like, are you a patient person or not? It's really a matter of, can you afford to be patient, right? So if, you, if you're running the Yale Endowment Fund, if you're running the Harvard Endowment Fund, if you're running CalPERS or a pension fund, you know, a state pension fund, you can afford to be patient. You know, you're looking at, tens and hundreds of millions of dollars and you're looking at long run returns and you're trying to cut risk. And, you know, that might be a very different story from someone who's younger, who's saving up to maybe buy their first home, you know, that they don't even own the home that they live in yet. So they're saving up for that. So, you know, a lot of it just depends on your life circumstances, I think. So with with alternative investments, with patient capital, um, a lot of times we're talking about preserving wealth and growing wealth more than building wealth. Capital preservation. I mean, I'm a pretty unsophisticated and the way I look at it is, you know, so even literally within the last couple of weeks, I made a commitment to a fund, small, teeny, it's, 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 uh, I think it's a $50 million fund run by uh, a, a very seasoned entrepreneur and strip centers specifically. That's all he does is strip centers. And they're, the price on them is, I'm going to say on the low end, 3 million bucks, a small stuff, right? Not institutional, but to as high as probably 8 to 10 million bucks. And he runs it all himself and blah, blah, blah. And I'm not going to see a penny probably for four or five years. So anyway, and I'm, and I'm in a handful of things like that. And I just look at it like, do I have enough liquid in between now and then to live on? And then I have faith that, you know, this guy's going to be such a strong operator. And then across a number of those, that'll be fine. And that, you know, that's kind of simplistically how I view the world as a, as an investor of my own capital. 
And that's patient capital. Exactly what you just described. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And you clearly have a lot of experience as an LP. What have you learned, I guess, through all that experience? Well, that's a good question. Um, My number one tip for people, and I mean, maybe this is a basic tip, but I think it's a good one, is know who you're investing with. You know, so to me, um, knowing the sponsor, knowing their reputation, and particularly a sponsor who's been doing, you know, whatever type of fund it is, whatever type of investment it is, I want to invest alongside a sponsor who's been doing this for years or decades, you know, ideally over multiple full market cycles so that they've, you know, been through the downturn of 2008 uh, or now, you know, going through the downturn of 2022 or that, you know, higher inflation, lower inflation, low interest rates, high interest rates. I think that kind of life experience and, and, and experience, um, you, you can't overvalue that. Uh, I think that's tremendously important as well as reputation and honesty. You know, I, I really love sponsors who are candid about their products, who can say, this is a good investment for you if dot, 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 you know, A, B, and C. If you're a very high net worth investor who's interested in doing ground up multifamily development, and who can afford to be illiquid for five to 10 years, something like that. But at the same time can say, uh, this will be a terrible investment for you if X, Y, or Z. You know, it can just be very candid about who their product is for, what type of investor it's appropriate for. So I, I think, honestly, the, the pro forma, the PPM, all that stuff, I look at it as people first. Uh, investing with people that I trust, you know, to be honest, and that I also frankly trust their expertise and their track record. On the real estate front, and I'm, this is probably getting, it, it's getting personal. So if you're uncomfortable not answering this, I, I respect and understand. But how, how many investments, how many sponsors, real estate sponsors are you invested with? Uh, that's a good question. I can fit them, um, let's see. Less than five. I can count them on one hand. Um, I'll put it that way. Um, I mean, part of it is there There are at least a dozen sponsors that I would invest with. So part of it has been uh, just circumstance. For instance, with uh, qualified opportunity funds, what funds are open or am I looking at at the time when I have a capital gain that I'm ready to place? But I would also say there's a sweet spot for me between diversification because you want to be diversified into alternatives and then also within alternatives, right? But at the same time, I don't want to be getting 50 K1s every year. Um, <laughs> so I've also learned over time, it's okay to pass on something or or I've even had investments that I've liquidated, not for really an investment reason so much as just a practical reason. Like I, I don't want to get this K1 anymore. I, I don't have enough capital placed here to even make it worth, you know, the, the mental overhead to kind of keep track of it. So um, I, I think for every investor, there's a sweet spot of you want to diversify, but simplicity, I think equates to time saved, equates to happiness. So that's just a personal reason. And who can argue with that? I got to tell you, I have immensely enjoyed our conversation, Andy, and appreciate your time uh, so much. How would one uh, get a hold of you if they were so inclined to uh, get involved in the alternative investment database and uh, you know get access to what you're doing? 
Great question. Well, our website is altsdb, stands for database, altsdb.com. But because I know everyone listening is a podcast listener, I recommend that they search for the Alternative Investment Podcast. We started that about a year ago. It's been surprisingly popular. So that's really, honestly, the best way to kind of keep up with the site, keep up with uh, what we're doing. The people that we're talking to is through the podcast. And then we also have the investor event coming up in December. Uh, you can go to altsdb.com slash expo and register for free if you're an accredited investor or a wealth manager, any sort of financial professional, um, it's free to register. Got it. Well, this has been so great. And uh, I uh, look forward to doing it uh, again sometime next year, but being in touch uh, along the way. So appreciate it so much. Thanks, Roger. I had a blast. All right. Talk to you soon. <laughs>